0: Canuck Central Draft Day Edition. The draft coverage on Sports at 650 is brought to you by the Vancouver Giants. Season tickets are available now. Join the Giants for their 22nd season in the WHL. Visit VancouverGiants.com slash season tickets today. Dan Riccio, Satyar Shah, Jamie Dodd, and now joining us in studio, former AGM with the Vancouver Canucks, it is Chris Gear. What's happening, Chris?
1: Morning, guys. I'm, uh... Happy to be here in studio. I feel like I've finally made it. <laughs> With the daily face-off, when I do that show, I'm just sitting in my home office on my computer. So this yeah, is this is the big time.
2: The glamorous Sportsnet 650 studio, yeah, exactly. really. Oh, the bunker. No internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And no cell service.
0: We, we have
3: spot. Like, th- this internet is like dial-up right now. My dial-up back in the 90s was stronger than the connection we currently have. Oh, this was uh,
0: setting a song or an album to download on Napster overnight and then uh, hopefully by the morning. Yeah. Have, uh, Remember the first MP3 to. players? They had like
3: two songs. So you yes. could put two songs on them. Uh, we've already got off the right. Makes
1: us appreciate uh, modern technology that much more. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Give us a little
0: inside feel of like uh, what, what the draft floor is like and the draft table is like uh, on draft weekend.
1: Yeah, I mean, night 1 is awesome. It's it's the glitz and glamour. It's showy. All the players are there. There's interviews in every corner of the building. Like it's it's a fun experience. And then day 2 is just a grind. And yeah. right? it's <laughs> six rounds in 6 hours. You're just flying through things and you know, as as management guys that don't necessarily know the players in the later rounds, <laughs> it gets it gets a little tough. You're just relying on your scouts to tell you, you know, who to pick and and then you're as management, you're looking at okay, does it make sense to package something and trade down? And you're looking at those mathematical tables of values to say <laughs> hey, we put put 41 and 86 together, we can get you know. So it's uh, but yeah, day day two is rough. I mean, it's uh, it's still exciting, but it's it's a grind for sure. You're you're sitting at a table for a long time.
3: And I'm sure there's there's also way more talk during day two, isn't it? As far as trade down possibilities, and all those sort of things. So how do you navigate all that? Because the clock is moving quickly. We see how fast it's moving. Teams are calling in, and how do you manage all that to make sure you don't miss opportunities?
1: Yeah, it's tough. I mean, a lot of times you're you're pitching something to a team, mm-hmm. and when they say no, you have to quickly, you know, decide. Okay, are we are we going to try doing that with another team, or mm-hmm. do we just take the pick? Um, you know leading up to day one, most of the discussions around the the big trades have already happened or there's there's some sort of genesis that's leading up to it and so it's not it doesn't happen out of the blue or I guess it could but it's pretty rare usually there's there's been a buildup to that whereas on day two all of these trade up trade down things are more spur of the moment and so it's really you you could have three or four guys at the table all pitching different people on different teams and and as soon as you get one that you think, is helpful you try to lock it in and uh you know it's about in those later rounds it's about accumulating as many dartboard picks as you can because we all know the percentages of players in rounds four to seven making it and so i think the more the more picks you have in those rounds the better chance you have that something's going to materialize
2: well and especially as you get later in the draft i think we have an idea that you know, the later you go, the more teams draft boards tend to differ, right? So if you're sitting there and, you know, the Canucks are about to pick at 144 here, there's probably a good chance that the guy they like will be also there at 160 or 165 or something. But is it just a question of it can be difficult because other teams know the same thing. It can be difficult to find those takers who want to jump up in the draft when you're looking to move back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's not unlike, I mean, we've all done fantasy sports drafts, right? And You gamble. Is that easy? easy? (laughs) No, but you... I'd be a great GM. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. But you gamble that the guy you want will still be there in, you know, 12 picks from now. In this case, it could be 30 picks, 32 picks. But, uh, you know, you're always... You know, the scouts have been on the road. They know who's high on players. They know... I I mean, Danila Klimovich was a guy who I Mm. think we felt not many teams knew about or not many teams had him as high. And so you know you could kind of wait pick him and think other teams aren't going to jump in on him early right mm-hmm. and so you use some of that intel to try and figure out when to make your move or when to maybe leave a guy trade down and he'll still be there it's it's a total gamble it's a guessing game you really don't know what other teams are thinking but you got to take those shots sometimes
0: so uh, we always have the uh, discussion of like uh, best player available or are you are you drafting for need and um it, it... When when you get to the draft table, is it just as simple as as following the whiteboard? How how does how does that uh, happen when you get to your pick?
1: I think the best strategy is always best player available. Yeah, um, you know, at some point you look at your system and go, okay, we need a goalie, and so a goalie is usually a bit outside of that thinking. Mm-hmm. Where you know maybe by round four or five, we need somebody who will fill the gap in the system four years from now, and so you might slot in a goalie. Um, but otherwise, I think you're always well served to go best available. Um, I think you get into trouble if you start thinking positionally because these guys are all, you know, other than the first round guys, these guys are two, three, four years away in their development mm-hmm. curve. And so, you know, there's there's going to be opportunities to either move them or take a guy on waivers. I mean, Your you needs might be different. Exactly. Two, three years down yeah, the road. Exactly. Anyways, so yeah. just, just find the best player according to the scouts list, try not to deviate from that list. And I think that serves you best. I mean,
3: all that stuff Makes total sense, and I think that's what you guys always did. It was take the best player available no matter what. And people always argue who was the better player, and that comes down to objectively how you, you know, uh, you uh rank those guys. But I th- what I think is interesting though is getting inside the player's head is that the hardest thing to figure out? Like, does this guy have the drive? Does this guy have the mental fortitude? Because hey, even a 17 year old in normal life is going to have ups and downs, and then with all the pressures going on, is that the hardest thing to figure out for yeah. a player?
1: absolutely you know it's easy to look at their stats and somebody can evaluate their skating and their shooting ability and all those things but it's it's often the intangibles it's it's their work ethic it's their willingness to put in the the time and effort to make the sacrifice you know to to do the extra work um, and and the scouts i mean you any team could just draft off central scouting's list right, right. but but it's that would just give you one person's opinion. If, if your scouts have done the work and they've met with the player multiple times, they've met with the family. Um, they've, they've seen the interactions the players had with his teammates, with his coaches, you know, they know what kind of person and character that, that kid's going to have. That allows you to project. And with much more certainty who that player will be when they're 20, 21, 22. So, um, yeah, it's, it's difficult. You're, you're still projecting something on a 17, 18-year-old kid that he may or may not turn out to be, but it, you use your best judgment to find those character pieces and then match that with the, the talent that you see on the ice.
2: We know there can be like really heated debates in the process leading up to the draft about players. Totally healthy. That's how, that's how a good process functions. You hear all the different opinions, and then you kind of collaborate to make your list does that continue even onto the draft floor, especially on day two, right? Or is it, or is it that point you've kind of, you've locked in your team's list and you're just going based on what you have there?
1: Yeah, I think for the most part it's done. I mean, you know, the story is legendary about the the Hoaglander yeah, yeah. pick a few years ago where, you know, after, after night one, the list did change, right? Because there was a, a desire to to make sure that Hoaglander was, was the player we picked. And so it, it, it did move, but you know, generally speaking, I think your your list at that point, going into day two, you may change it after night one, but then on the draft floor, I don't think your list is changing on day two.
0: When it comes to the, like uh, what what Sat was mentioning and getting to know the players, is that what where the combine is really most valued is is getting those interviews at at the combine rather than the measurables physically
1: of a player? That's a big part of it. I mean, th- those interviews are important because yeah. you really get a sense of. Of who that player is and you know their responses can indicate whether they're Mm -hmm. intelligent whether they're too cocky whether they have the humility it it does tell you a lot about a player but you also rely on on the scouts opinions because they've been following these players all year they've Mm -hmm. been having chats with them at the rink they've been you know talking to their coaches their teammates they really have the best pulse on on who these kids are and the uh, the combine is is a A chance for the rest of the management team to just either validate that or find something about the player that they either really like or don't like and it can can make a big difference
3: well and you know the, the draft itself that's the most important part of this weekend but with the Canucks there's been so many trade rumors and stuff going on and you know It's always funny because the amount of rumors always away more than the actual action that happens. And we kind of saw that over the past few days, especially when it comes to the Vancouver Canucks. And when you start looking around the league and we were talking about this off air, there isn't a ton ton of money around the league. You see some of the money already being taken up with the contracts that are getting moved and Fiala gets traded and the other big deals happen. How complicated is it to make those deals, even when there are players of value at this type of juncture?
1: Yeah, it's always difficult in the salary cap era just because, especially since the cap's been frozen for a couple of years, mm-hmm. it's so tight. Every There's probably 15 teams that are right up against it, and the teams that do have money are teams like Anaheim and Detroit and Buffalo that aren't necessarily making big moves. Uh, you saw Ottawa make a big move for Dabrinkat. I think they're starting to evolve out mm-hmm. of that non-spending team and, and with their young core starting to maybe go for it a little bit. But... Yeah, it's, it's difficult, but there are opportunities. You just have to be really decisive. Um, and sometimes you can get criticized. Like when we moved, yeah. you know, is there breaking news? I was saying I have a follow-up already. Oh, okay, saying, sorry. So i trying to get their attention. Sorry. Go, on, yeah, go on. You know, I, I was thinking about the the move that actually brought JT Miller here. Yeah. And it was criticized because we gave a first and a third for that. But, you know, it was a decisive play on on Jim's part to, to do that because – it was a player that that we targeted, that we felt was was ripe to have a big progression, uh, getting out of the Tampa system where he was a bit, um, you know, under a lot of top quality players, and you have to make a bold move sometimes. Yeah. So you know, I think I think opportunities are there, but it, it absolutely is difficult in the cap world.
3: Well, and to that point about those opportunities that arise, because you see it sometimes when you see the NFL stuff, because literally a phone call will happen. It's like you have a chance now for five minutes. And if that goes, you may never get that deal again. Is that what happens sometimes?
1: Yeah, it can. I mean there's some deals that you're talking with the other team for weeks and weeks and weeks and but then other times when they call and they have an opportunity and if you pause too long to think about it, you look on Twitter and the guy's already gone somewhere else <laughs> you're right right yeah. so it's um it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> you've got to be decisive <laughs> yeah. when there's something that that comes across your desk that works jump on it.
2: Well, one thing we heard yesterday, right, was the reports that there was something in the works between the Canucks and the Islanders, and, you know, I know Sat's working the phones, other people are working the phones, trying to figure out exactly what happened, but just, you know, I don't want to get into the specifics of that, because we don't know the specifics, but just kind of, in general, if you are working on a deal with a team, and it seems like it's really going down to the road to completion, what are the kind of pressure points or dominoes that can cause something that looks like it's going to get done to all of a sudden fall apart at, at the last moment?
1: it could be an extra piece like it, sometimes it's the the small piece that an ex, that a team <laughs> yeah. wants right and it's 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 strange that that would make it fall apart um, you know, somebody might be insisting that the other piece in a deal has to be a, a fifth round pick and the team says, no, it's got to be a sixth and it can fall apart over something as silly it, as that. It always cracks
2: me up when you see these big complex deals and then there's a seventh round pick going right. in one direction. It's like, really? That's right. what we were
1: haggling over that at the end? But yeah. yeah, no. a lot of times it's it's that simple, right? It's just somebody wants to win the deal. There's a lot of, yeah. of ego involved and and somebody you know, feels like they're not getting enough or they're going to get criticized in the media unless they also get some additional piece. And so there's that, you know, put yeah. yours on the table, I'll put mine on the <laughs> table and see. And it's, uh, yeah, it's crazy. That, that Islanders one, though, I that one didn't make a lot of sense to me from the Islanders' perspective because you look at their team, you know, they've got five or six forwards that are in their 30s on long-term deals. It didn't make sense to me that they would have interest in Miller, you know, never say never. It, yeah. You know, there's maybe they had other plans to move somebody else out. But uh, I, I think a team like the Rangers or a team that has more young assets it would be a, a better fit. And so that's – but I, now that there's a first round is gone and there's no first round pick return coming for the Canucks, I don't see them making that move right now. I see yeah. them probably hanging on to them. Um, you know, you look at, at the deadline, uh, they could – it's always going to be tough because if they're in the playoff hunt, you don't want to, yeah. you don't want to ditch a good player, but you know, if they're kind of middling or they're hanging around and they don't see a chance to win, you can retain half of Miller's money and he'd be an absolute bargain at, you know, mm-hmm. 2.6 for a team. And we've seen this year, you know, Florida, how they went after Giroux and um, other player, other teams that get other teams to hold money so they can get a player at a, at a discount and they're willing to give up a lot for it. So You know, the Canucks are still in the driver's seat here, and if they're willing to to keep him around, you've got a hell of a player at five and a quarter million, and he'll fetch a lot at the deadline.
0: Uh, The Canucks were on the clock at uh, pick 144. Um... They did take a commercial break on the TV broadcast, so I'm not sure if It's the a couple times today, that they they've done so. They yes.
3: have made the pick. They have made the pick. It is Ty Young out of Prince George, a uh, goaltender who's going to be playing for the Cougars next season, playing the AJHL this past year, and he's going a three goaltender. Uh, stats don't really jump off the page from what he did in the AJHL and even in the WHL a little bit last year, but you're talking about somebody being picked in the fifth round, and I, I would imagine, Chris, if they're picking Ty Young, a certain goalie guru with the organization, Ian Clark, would okay this type of selection. I'm not surprised they picked up a goalie, especially if they end up moving a Di Pietro and you look long-term. It's not a foregone conclusion that one of D Pietro and Silas will play in the NHL. They still need more, I think, even though Koskin Vua, who you guys grabbed last year, has some exciting ability too. But if the Canucks are picking Ty Young here, you would imagine Ian Clark had a big say in it.
1: Clarky had more than a big say. <laughs> Clarkey is all over this one, right? He's, he loves the draft and he loves to have at least one goalie yeah. every year. Uh, it's funny. I remember you mentioned Seelovs. I remember he,
3: mm-hmm. he's,
1: he's an example of a guy that Ian Clark pounded the table for in about round four. I think we got him in round six, right? Yeah. And, uh, So Clarky was Clarky was he was so pissed off, frankly, that we didn't take him at four. And then, and then round five comes along. We still didn't take him. He was steaming, right? He's livid. He's just livid. And then he's still there at six, and we get him. And then he's beaming around the suite. So uh, yeah, Clarky's Clarky's awesome, and he he, his fingerprints are all over every goalie move that the team makes.
0: Uh, So Ty Young, the latest selection, uh, pick one forty four for the Vancouver Canucks, will be playing with uh, Prince George in the dub this upcoming season now you know you mentioned uh keeping jt around uh you know, just uh, opining like hey maybe that's that's the play here um to keep jt around and, and bring him all the way to the trade deadline it just it gets really muddy in this market we see how already how how like crazed the jt miller trade talk has gotten could you imagine what that would look like through the course of the season and in the lead-up to the deadline when the canucks
1: are potentially fighting for a playoff spot Yeah, that's a really good point, Rich. I mean, this market gets to a fever pitch, and it it would create such a distraction all year that it probably isn't sustainable. But, you know, if the Canucks, unless they were to get two really top prospects back from a team, you know, with with the first and second round already gone here, then you're looking at getting futures that are really far away from helping your team, right? If you're taking a 23 first rounder or a 24 first rounder, so you could get a similar deal maybe at the deadline next year. Is is kind of the argument. I think like. you could get a better deal again because wow. you can you can hold money, right? right? And and a team that's going for it and that knows that they're one piece away and they only have 3 million of cap space and JT Miller fits that, right? Because you can keep half the money and I think you could get a you know, maybe even two first, who knows.
2: Is there a risk, though, that even not just from the market's perspective, but internally, if all of a sudden you're sitting there in a playoff spot, that, you know, maybe that was your plan going into the year, right? We hold him at the deadline, but all of a sudden you see how the team's performing and you like what you're doing, and the, does the temptation become maybe too strong then to to move a player like JT Miller at the
1: deadline? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's... Then it becomes an ownership <laughs> that, call, too, absolutely. doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> that would be a very <laughs> yeah. tough organizational yeah. decision, right, when you've got that. And, and it's also hard on the team. Like if yeah. you can't, you can't look at the other 22 guys on the roster and say, we're in the midst of a playoff run and we're going to take our best player and send yeah. them away for futures. I mean, that's, that's really tough. And that's why I think, you know, the Canucks probably would be better served to either figure out an extension or, or do something now, but it's going to be tough now to get the return they want just because the the first round pick from this year is off the table now.
3: I can't wait to get into the contract stuff because you were very key on working on contracts. You understand very intimately how that works in negotiations. But before we get to that, you know, just on the trade stuff with JT, I wonder if you see parallels as far as sometimes when you go down the road with a team and there's no secret Vancouver and the Rangers had a lot of discussions this past year and never materialized to a deal. And in the offseason, it seemed like right now it never got close with them. But it reminds me of, with you guys in Arizona, before the OEL trade, it was the year before there were some talks, it didn't happen, and then last offseason, the deal happened. When there's already that groundwork put in, and it's clear interest from one party and a specific player, can as time goes on, that comes together? And that's why I wonder, if a deal does happen, it would ultimately be the Rangers. There's been a lot of groundwork made already. They have pieces. Does that happen sometimes, where they circle back and you kind of find some, some mutual middle ground down the road?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair point, Sad. I think you hear a lot of times around the league that, you know, there's certain GMs that have preferences for certain players, or you know, if they've inquired about a player once, it probably means they're interested in the future. And so you go back to them and say, Hey, you know, I know you I know you like this player before, we've got a different proposal for you now. Could something like this work? So I think that does happen a lot, and it's not not exclusive to just you know the yeah. the Arizona thing that happened, mm-hmm. but um, I think it happens around the league where, yeah, team teams don't lose interest in players overnight. Yeah, if, if they have a liking for them one season, then it's it's pretty likely that's still in their head for the future. If you come to them with something a little bit tweaked, mm-hmm.
0: you know, uh, a, a contract negotiation. We know the you know Patrick Alveen mentioned it to us. Uh, didn't necessarily say JT Miller negotiations are going in a good direction, but uh, they're, they're still having talks. Um, you know, the, the player's 30 years old. We see around the league, like, players getting to that age, less and less money is being found for them, unless your name is Chris Letang. Um, it's just, it, it seems like there is more, uh, more teams that are gun-shy to really go the extra mile with, with aging players. Uh, and JT Miller is still in the thick of his prime. He's as good a player as he's ever been, as we just yeah. saw. But you still have to weigh, you know, where you are and where that contract might be three years from now right?
1: A hundred percent. You know, it's a player of that age. It's really tough to think about extending for seven, eight years or even six. It's just, you know, the play is going to drop off at some point and you're going to end up with a contract that is overpriced. And so I can understand the Canucks reluctance to not want to extend for the long term. But you know, if you're JT and you've just come off a 99 point season, you want to maximize your value. And There are teams out there that are going to be willing to do it that, that feel like their window is, you know, that they're on the cusp Mm. and that that investment is worth it and that they'll worry about those later years of the contract when they get there. So long as they think, you know, in the, in the immediate term that he might help get them over the top. So it's, uh, it certainly is a, a difficult decision, but you know, if, and maybe through these conversations, JT and his agent have seen that there's some reluctance around the league, and they might mm-hmm. come back to the Canucks and say, you know what? If the money's right, we might be willing to do a five year deal. And to do a five year deal with JT Miller, I think the Canucks would have to seriously consider that. Well, I just don't know if JT's reached that conclusion. Yet.
3: And that's exactly what I was wondering, Chris, because. Things change as time goes on. And if, for instance, the market for trade for JT is not that robust, is that also an indication that perhaps the money may not be what they're in? Like, if teams aren't going out to acquire him and give what it takes, then what's the likelihood of him getting every penny he wants in a year's time? So once they get through free agency, let's say the next week or so, and some teams fill up some spots, do you think it could be a lot more, it could make some sense, say, the 15, 16 to sit down and JT looks at it and says, well, maybe my best deal is here. And then it becomes clear that this is the place to stay. Like that possibility is a reasonable one that could happen, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, I think um, JT and his agents obviously know the market. I mean, his agents having conversations with every GM. And even if there isn't official permission being asked, they're having informal conversations. So I I think he's going to get a really good sense of the value for his player. And... You know, if that if that value doesn't seem to be there, then I think they change their tune a little bit and, and probably have a different discussion with the Canucks. But that that discussion doesn't need to happen yet, right? JT holds some cards in this too. He's still got a contract. He, you know, he doesn't have to... He he can just yeah. kind of wait and see what the Canucks do, right? Um, so I, there's so many ways this could unfold, but it's going to be interesting. And, and obviously yeah. it'll be the hot topic on Twitter until it gets resolved. <laughs> Uh, Chris Gear is joining us in studio for our Draft Day edition.
0: We'll keep talking Canucks, uh, get his take on some of the moves around the league as well. It's been uh, quite the weekend, and I think uh, the Chicago Blackhawks are under fire for a lot of what they've done. Uh, we'll talk about that and more coming up as uh, Draft Day coverage continues on Canucks Central. Sports at six fifty draft coverage is brought to you by the Vancouver Giants. Season tickets are available now. Join the Giants for their 22nd season in the dub. Visit Vancouvergiants.com/slash season tickets today. Dan Richo, Satyar R. Shaw, Jamie Dodd, and joined in the studio by uh former AGM of the Vancouver Canucks. Chris Gear, now uh doing some work with Daily Faceoff as well. Latest Canucks pick, Ty Young, uh, goalie, who will be playing with Prince George in the dub this upcoming season. They'll have a round six pick As uh, the draft is just flying by today. So uh, a lot happening around the league here, uh, Chris, and just gives us a chance to kind of air it out and think of uh, some of the big moves that have happened. Matt Murray, uh, apparently the senators are trying to move that contract. We saw some uh, cap dump deals yesterday. Ken Holland played a little bit more than uh, the Leafs did to dump uh, uh, Peter Marazic, but the Chicago Blackhawks are kind of fascinating. They, Trade for Seth Jones last year, and now they're uh, kicking into a rebuild by trading a 24-year-old Alex DeBrinkett and 21-year-old uh, Kirby Doc. What's your take on what uh, Kyle Davidson's up to?
1: Yeah, I'm not really sure I understand it. Because to your point, a, t- a 24-year-old and a 21-year-old, they're going to be the core of your team when you get through that rebuild. So, you know, I'm not sure why they're not trying to move on from Kane and Tay's, for example, right. right? And, you know, I know they've been obviously heroes to that organization and they, they have no moves and things like that. But to me, that would be where you need to focus your attention is is moving on from, from some of those old guys. Give them one more opportunity with a franchise to win and and keep Dabrinkat and, and Doc to try and, you know, start building with them. So, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just a, a Connor Bedard play, but, you know, I, I don't know if it's worth blowing up your team for the next... several years uh on in the hopes that you get that one player because as we've seen with the draft lottery nothing's (laughs) nothing's guaranteed as to who you're gonna get so um i you know i it's not a strategy that makes a whole lot of sense to me but uh hey maybe like i
0: i feel like it's it's kind of taking a page out of baseball's book a little bit where you know you see small market teams do this like a guy's two years away from free agency like okay we're just going to trade him now because you know we know we're not going to be able to keep him and uh, so maybe that's kind of the thinking there with, with at, or, and, and with Doc, you know, okay, yeah, he's 21, hasn't really played all that well, but maybe it's just something, you know, let's cut our ties now if we don't totally believe in this player and still get something of value back.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, they they know the player better than anyone else. Yeah. And so it's, it's very possible that they know some things about the player or they just don't have a good feeling about the player anymore and they don't think he's going to reach mm-hmm. the ceiling they first thought he would. And they'd rather sell when there's still some perceived value out there. Uh, and so time will tell whether they're right or wrong about that. Yeah. Um, with the Brinkett, we obviously know he's yeah. a he's an excellent player. Star. I mean, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the number is a little scary because he'd probably demand eight, nine million, but... Um, you know, like I said, he's he's young, he'd be part of that core, and it's not like they don't have the cap space to make it happen. So, uh, yeah, it's a little strange, but we'll see. I mean, Kyle obviously has a plan that he believes in, and, you know, I'm not going to throw him completely under the bus (laughs) until we see what... How that works? Right? Yeah,
3: I just wonder with everything going on with Chicago, they just said it's better if we just reset our entire organization <laughs> and just take a few years and let the you know let all the toxicity go away and try to build it up again. I mean, who knows? But I, I'm with you. It's strange. I like some of the stuff they did, but some of the stuff doesn't make sense. The one trade I was really interested by and, and really wanted to get your thoughts on was. Edmonton trading Zach Cassian and just getting getting rid of the money and essentially what they did was swap you know uh, late was it, late late first round picks and they
0: got uh, thirty two in exchange for twenty nine and, and then, then a two, third and a future second and a future third.
3: So basically what they did was pay Arizona a future second and a third to get off three million and change this year and next year. So two years of three million and change, is that fair or is that? As far as the market goes, because you looked at what Toronto did, they paid less, yeah, to get off Mrazek's contract than Edmonton did.
1: Yeah, I mean it's hard. It's hard to compare the two, um, but I think I think it is fair. I mean, Edmonton obviously needs the cap space to try to solidify their goaltending and to take a run, whether it's Evander Kane or whether it's they've been linked to Giroux. Um, they need at least one more elite forward, and then they've got a couple of RFAs they want to sign. So they needed the cap space. They were either going to buy out Cassian or they were going to end up burying him in the, in the AHL. Mm-hmm. And so to me, to get rid of his entire cap hit versus the buyout or or burying him, which would have only relieved them of a portion of the cap hit, to me it's worth giving up a couple of those assets. They're, they're in a window now mm-hmm. with Settle and McDavid where they have to make those moves giving up some futures is it's never easy but you know they have got to prove themselves now and they need that cap space now so i think that's the sacrifice they had to make
2: the other element of the debrinkat trade that was interesting was the return struck a lot of people as kind of underwhelming and you get a 7th overall pick it's not easy to get a pick that high on draft day i understand but you know you look at the production the age all of it from debrinkat and and people were kind of underwhelmed and we immediately started getting the question you know well, what does this mean for jt miller's value and You know, just from your perspective, Chris, how do teams react to, you know, trade packages like that and use them as comparables? Because, you know, on the one hand, yeah, maybe it does set the price, but also every situation is different. How do those precedents come up and and how do teams use them in trade talks down the road?
1: Yeah, when a deal like that happens, if there's a team that that package benefits, Mm -hmm. they're going to use that in the negotiation. They're going to say, well, look, this is is the precedent. We're not willing to do any more than that. And the other team tries to distinguish it saying, well, no, no, that that's, Mm -hmm. it's different for our player because of X, Y, and Z, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's the age of the player. Maybe it's their RFA versus UFA status. There's, there's going to be some distinguishing characteristic that they'll try and highlight. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, (laughs) it's, it's who's a better negotiator and who can, you know, I I was underwhelmed by that return as well. And, and frankly, I was even a little bit underwhelmed by the Fiala return, even though they got a really good prospect (laughs) You know, and the pick, um, but you're you're talking about an 80, 85 point player who's yeah. on an upswing. To me, that's that's worth more than than what they got. And same with the Cut, But
3: does it come down to then maybe just what we were talking about earlier, the lack of money in the system? Fiala big contract looming. Same thing for Diprincut. Big money looming, even though he's under contract next year is it a reflection of how hard it's going to be to commit that type of money especially you know coming into a recession off the pandemic is is it a reflection of the money and the economy maybe
1: yeah that's that's definitely part of it i think w- with the squeeze on the cap you know everybody always wants to have those those young assets mm-hmm. and those those picks that can replenish at an entry level cost and so you know giving those up and taking on bigger money contracts is is difficult to do And it it all depends on the window a team sees itself in, whether they're willing to take that risk. And there's only so many of those teams that feel like they're there and they can do that. So, um, yeah, difficult (laughs) difficult decision every time.
0: Uh, Canucks' next pick is at uh, 176. Uh, So there's been quite a bit of uh, moving and shaking here uh, on draft weekend. Probably the biggest team to make a splash. Um, It's the first time the draft is in person since Vancouver, in 2019 and it's the Montreal Canadiens they make the surprise pick at one and then they trade for Kirby Doc I mean uh Kent Hughes is, is making a splash he wants to surprise the home crowd I kind of wonder with Montreal like it felt like they were going through a rebuild but here they are saying uh you know we're, we're going to go out and, uh, and acquire somebody for a big time pick as well it's it's been an interesting uh interesting spot for the Habs
1: yeah I really like what Kent Hughes did because I think you know Doc is a guy that He's still obviously very young. It's not like they went and traded futures for a, yeah, you know, later, higher someone age close guy. to UFA. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So they they'll have control of Doc for a number of years. Uh, I think he fits with that group that they're bringing up, whether you know Suzuki and Slapkowski now, and you know I, I think that's a group that they can grow together. Mm-hmm. And um, you know it was a, a bit of a big swing, and you knew that Montreal was going to do something to excite the home crowd. Um, but I, I like the the ingenuity of making the first trade to get the 13th pick and then swapping that, it showed a lot of creativity. And I think, um, you know, that's, that's Hughes first major move as the GM there. And I liked it.
3: Well, you
2: said you called it ingenuity. I think that's a good word because, you know, we always can play out these fantasy trades and, Oh, what if they get this and then flip it to that team for this? But it's hard to juggle all those balls in the air, especially on draft day when you also have the first overall pick on top of that, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Although the fact that they had the first overall pick and probably knew which way they were going, even though that you know yeah. they wouldn't they wouldn't tell anybody, and it seemed like it was still going down to the wire between he and Wright, but they probably knew what they were doing, and then had some time to focus on on making the trade. So, um, but yeah, it is it is difficult anytime there's more than one team involved, and. You know, because you might have something almost locked in with one team, and then you go back to the next team to make sure you can still do that second piece of it, and they might go in a different direction. So, right. you, to have three teams aligned is 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 challenging.
3: Well, and what I find really interesting too is, you know, the Slavkovsky thing—he goes first overall, and there is the draft boards that are outside the industry, and and they're very valuable because people do great work on them; they give you great insight, but they're not always indicative of what's actually going to happen in a draft because the industry views views it very differently and we have 32 teams with unique lists to themselves there are a lot of variants to it so when we talk about trading down in the first round specifically it's so hard to do isn't it because chances are a guy you would like is going to be there right when you're picking like we saw with Vancouver at 15 we've seen it with you know in the past too where you know you guys were picking fifth or something and it's like okay we consider moving down but here's Elias Patterson We, we just can't trade down and take that guy is that the toughest thing because everybody's list is so different when it comes to these guys
1: that's part of it i think i think part of it is also that people are a little scared to be wrong yeah right and if you if you trade down and then the guy that you left sitting there you know becomes a superstar that's going to haunt you for 10 years right um yeah i mean it's hard to know because there is value in trading down sometimes if you're if you're not extremely high on the player that's there, I think in the Canucks' case, the the player they got at 15 was someone that was ranked much higher on yeah. on their board as well as a lot of the, the the so-called expert boards, and that's just too good to pass up. So, uh, you know, I I think for the most part, teams will will take that pick rather than the risk of getting it wrong.
3: Going back to the two best picks that were made, Pedersen and Quinn Hughes. Which player were you most surprised by? I know Quinn is probably the one you guys were shocked of being there at number. Like, which guy did you guys have higher in the respective drafts, Pedersen or Hughes, that were available? Pedersen at five, Hughes at seven. I know you can't tell me specifically, just, you know... Because I, I, I would guess the Hughes one was the one where you guys were
1: like, you can just see the reaction. Yeah, we, like, had, we had Hughes pretty high, Yeah, and we expected him to go several spots before then. Yeah. And, I mean, I think he, you remember how giddy Jim was doing <laughs> yes. the interview, right? Yeah. I mean, none of us thought Hughes was going to be there, mm-hmm. and that that was a case where uh, the best available really fit the need as well because yeah. we needed a, a puck-moving defenseman. And so when, when it all comes together and you get the guy you want – um and it also fits the biggest need you have. I mean, it's that's that's as good as it gets. Um, you know, with, with Pedersen, I think we picked him a lot higher than, yeah. well, we had him pretty high, but we picked him a lot higher than most people had him pegged. And, um, yeah, I mean, we're just fortunate in both cases to get the right guy.
3: Well, if you guys don't take Pedersen at five and trade down, somebody else probably takes him. With what we know now, the next teams behind you guys probably would have taken Pedersen. So if you guys would have traded down and saying, you know, we have Pedersen later, we can probably get him at eight or nine. We probably wouldn't have been able
1: to get him. Yeah. That's a good point. That would have been a, a big risk. Yeah. And I'm glad it didn't play out yeah. that way. But that's <laughs> that's the,
2: the kind of nightmare scenario you were describing. Why exactly. teams don't trade down, right? Exactly. All of a sudden you say, Oh my goodness, this team scooped Elias Pedersen and look what he's doing in the league now.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's, it is it is funny how we've, we've seen some, some money deals around the league. I know, uh, over at Daily Faceoff, you were talking about the McDonough trade, and it it's just cap space right now in this league is absolutely king. It allows you to do so many things right now if you have some available cap space to go out and acquire players that are potentially really good and really good ads for almost nothing
1: in, in return. Yeah, and, and the reason that trade surprised me is not that – I mean, McDonough's still a good player, and I can see why yeah. Nashville would have wanted him. But when you're taking a guy that's 33 years old, has four years left at 6.75, you got to think that at least the last year, maybe the last two years, are going to be really inefficient. Yeah. And so I thought Nashville needed to get something back from Tampa to acknowledge that they were taking that risk on. An and extra asset, a pick – prospect something like that. Exactly. Or even maybe some retention. Just something to show, hey, like this isn't a we're not just taking on a player, we're taking on some risk here. And not only did they not get anything for it, they actually gave them Philippe Myers who Tampa can either throw in its minor league system and try to try to get him back to where a lot of people thought he would be, or they can buy him out and actually get a cap credit. So, you know, Nashville was giving up an asset when I thought they should have been getting an asset. And so that's in a, in a cap world, I think you always have to be cognizant of those risks that you take on. And, you know, somebody, somebody threw it back on Twitter about, about the OEL trade that we made. And, you know, I'm not going to say whether, whether I was, you know, all in favor or, or had reservations about it, but you know, you disagree and commit in this business. And I, I saw a lot of the rationale for it, whether it was right or wrong. Well,
3: um, at the end of the day, your job was very specifically negotiate contracts, negotiate this. I mean, as much as you may disagree on something, at the end of the day, you're working towards a goal. So, I mean, you may disagree on something, but if the goal is we're trying to acquire the player, you still you still do everything you can to make it work.
1: Oh, 100, yeah. 100. And and I'm not I'm not here to say I I didn't agree right. with it. I I had I like all of us, we we talked it over, and there were it was an organizational decision that this was a package that that worked for the team and you know garland coming back was a was a high piece so you know there's everybody in in the room saw the pros and cons of doing it but yeah. there was a there was a decision made that that we would do it but you know as opposed well, it's, it's to it's the, a perfect
0: example because both players like in a vacuum both players performed well this past season for the vancouver canucks but it, it was always about the long-term commitment of oel's contract that could be cumbersome for the team.
1: Right. And and that's why I was, that's why I brought it up in the first place, just drawing that comparison with Ryan yeah. McDonough. But OEL was 30, McDonough's 33. Um, you know, you had Garland coming back. So, uh, you know, the, I think there's, I think you can distinguish it, um, but yeah. it is, it is the same type of risk, right? When you take on a player that has those additional years at a big number and it's, there's, there's pros and cons to be weighed there. Uh,
0: the Vancouver Canucks uh, just making their latest selection. Defenseman Jackson Dorrington
3: at uh, pick 175 of uh, of the draft. Uh, another left-hand defenseman out of the USHL system. And, um, you know, I'm not quite sure where he's committed to play. Northeastern, Northeast, University, Northeastern. University. Well, there is a Northeastern connection with the Vancouver Canucks, mm-hmm. of course, and the players they've had in that system before. But, yeah, you're talking about a lefty defenseman who probably projected to be a bit of a later round draft pick and, you know, just kind of adding something else to the books. But you're talking about a guy that just looking at it really quickly, long term project, uh, even in the USHL, didn't put up a ton of points, 11 in 41 and quickly looking at his profile projects to be a defensive defense and defensive type. Uh, six
0: to uh, buck 92 uh, on uh, on the weight scale. Um what is it with uh, the Canucks and Northeastern, Chris? Like, is, is there just something in the water there that uh, the team just keeps uh, keeps going back? They even advertise now at Rogers Arena. It's like, what's going on?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Obviously, uh, a couple of good prospects have come out of there, yeah. and so our scouts pay attention to to the schools where they've had success before, I guess. So,
0: one um, one kind of thing I uh, I did want to touch on you with, and and it's it's free agency you know, it, it opens up and, and we look at it, we have signing frenzy shows and all these things are happening and, um, you know, that that tampering window kind of opens up. How does a team go about preparing for free agency and what's to come? Usually July 1, but this year, July 13.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit like the amateur draft Yeah, except you've got your pro scouts building lists instead of your amateur scouts building right. lists. And so you know, they're they do a number of lists. You try to get the pro scouts to say, "Don't think about cap hits. Don't think about the stuff that the rest of us will will look at. Just look at the player type, and who do you think would fit into the organization? You know, if there's a need at left wing, rank the left wings that you think fit best for us to target, and then you know we'll evaluate whether." it's too rich or whether it, it doesn't make sense from a cap perspective, but you don't want the scouts thinking about that. Cause if they're making determinations in their own head about, mm-hmm. well, this guy will never like, that's not their job. So you want the scouts to just build those lists and then you go through them and you, you decide which guys you want to target. And then, you know, then it comes down to, to offers and you know, you make, you make, <laughs> the organization decides what offer it wants to make and, Sometimes it's an overpayment, but a lot of times that's the case in free agency, right? If you're going that route, it's because a guy wants to get paid and is is bidding you off against other teams. And so you have to have the discipline to walk away and sometimes – teams don't have that discipline.
2: Well, and that's the risk with free agency is, I mean, if you get the player, usually it means you're outbidding everyone else, which means there's a, a decent risk that you're maybe overvaluing the player compared to everyone else, right? And that's one of the things you have to be cautious with in free agencies, that you don't get lost in that that kind of cycle, right?
1: Absolutely.
3: Well, one thing, too, uh, that, that I just find funny about just the whole process is when when I looked at what Vancouver has been able to do in free agency the last little while last year, you guys actually found a lot of strong value bets. Kyle Burrow's two year deal value, Luke Shen two year deal value, and even you know some of the other guys like Brady Keeper got hurt, but another guy that has value. Yeah. Is that for a team that's in this transition now? We're looking at free agency. Is that maybe the best avenue to continue down to try to? You know target more of those types of guys on a couple one way deals for two years that you can maybe stash in, in the minors and hope that one or two of those guys come through. Because if they do, man, having guys making 750, 800K and they can play for you that's so massive.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. When when people think about free agency, they're always thinking about the top end guys, right? Yeah. And this year it's the Forsbergs and Giroux and Johnny Goodrows, but but there's a ton of value at that lower end. And there's, there's so many guys in the league now that can play and can cost you a million or less. And, you know, we we turned over 18 of our 50 potential contracts last year. Like it was, I think it was a record to do in one day. And it was, you know, also guys like Sheldon Drys and Sheldon Rempel that, you know, aren't, aren't going to be huge contributors for a team, but they can provide that depth. They can come up and, and give you some meaningful minutes. And I think, you know, each of those guys was, was important and Brad hunt. And, you know, there were a lot of guys that, like you said, either, either one way money or even two way money. And they just provide that extra depth. And, and sometimes he hit, I remember, you know, Florida, when they signed Carter Verhage a yeah. few years ago, it was, I think it was 800 grand and he popped and became, you know, a really integral part so there's always guys like that, and you just have to have to try and find them, and that's where hopefully, and you're not you're not only reliant on your scouts because management does know the NHL guys yeah. pretty well as well, um, but you know as a team you try to try to figure out who those guys are that are going to help you and provide value. Uh,
0: you can find him on Twitter at Van Gearman. He's been kind enough uh, to join us here in studio for an hour. On uh, day number two of the draft, uh, we're heading now almost into round seven, so it's going to be wrapping up here shortly. Chris, really appreciate your time and your insights.
1: Happy to do it, guys. Thanks for having me in here. Yeah, A lot thanks.
0: Of fun. thanks for uh, thanks for joining us.